Many people have problems with art and not with reality. So why is art different? It's pretty simple, right? This is knowledge, this is thinking, this is thought. Yeah, it does something strange with your head. Welcome to the Undergang Armchair. Bring it. Welcome to the Undergang Armchair. My name is Ando. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back. Thank you for letting me into your head. I have to start out with my sincere apologies for the delay in releasing this episode. The logistics and uh, timing gods have been especially hard on this program lately, but it does look like things are turning around. We have a lot of good stuff coming up. So uh, this is episode 100, huh? It's been over three years of this program, 100 guests, a lot of ups and downs. I don't really want to spend too much time here reflecting and or being nostalgic, but I would like to say that it has been an honor to have the chance to even do this, ups and downs included. But you, the listeners, you keep me at this. And of course, the many great guests who have uh, graced this program since it started. I am very thankful to each and every one of you, and also to all the galleries who've been supportive along the way. And uh, I'm not kidding when I say it still feels like we are just getting started. Did I mention that Talar is the special guest for the 100th episode? I'll get back to that in a second. I do want to thank, specifically, Staten's Kunstfund for their support. I want to thank Gallery V1, Bo Biergaard, and all the other galleries who've helped along the way. Anas, Sina, and the Yuluop team, shout out to them. Each and every guest who has generously given their time to come on and listen to my inane blather. And finally, again, to you, the listeners. I'm going to be traveling, so things will be a little light here during the summer, but we can look forward to a lot of great stuff happening in the fall, upcoming collaborations, etc., and etc. And apropos collaboration, be sure to come out this Sunday at 2 p.m., and take part in a live podcast recording slash artist talk with Peter Vosknul and I at Overgallen. We'll be talking about a crazy project he's done with the Danish military. It should be a lot of fun. It's your chance to see the show live. So, did I mention that Talar is the special guest for episode number 100? I can only assume he needs no introduction, right? He has a huge show up at Louisiana. He makes great work. And uh, turns out I really love the way he talks about art. So uh, go see his show if you haven't already. Go see the show again if you have. I don't care. And yeah, that's it. Talar, onwards to the next 100. I did notice you were talking about your dad and having a father who who didn't you said circus Danish, mm-hmm. which is a very great uh, expression. Mm-hmm. Uh people have spoken about my Danish a lot about being circus Danish. Oh yeah. Which in as 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 someone who speaks English you'd think that that's is is you're saying, oh, it's bad. But what actually what you're saying is it's traveling Danish. It's people who yeah. travel in and out of Denmark yeah. speak yeah. a certain level of Danish. So if you're in a traveling show, you might speak this level. Yeah. You can also meet people who speak almost perfect Danish, but you sense there is a another kind of rhythm in their language. 
I think that's you, me. You just can't. It, you, it's nothing to do with the pronunciation. That's just where you put the pressure in the in the language. It's because there is another language, mm. and I guess in the brain, it ma- it it makes a different Danish. I really like that. I think it's uh, it's great that this exists. Well, I think maybe one of the reasons Danish is so unflexible as a language is the lack of foreigners speaking it. English is super flexible. It's pulled in all sorts of directions. You you feel this more in America than if you go to Britain, you don't feel the same. Mm, In America, it's like it's really a flexible language. In England, you feel feel more stressed, not speaking (laughs) properly. Right, making sure it's stiff upper lip, proper. It's more about also the humor. The humor is so much between the words Mm. in London that you, as an... As a nun, when you have English as your second language, you get more aware that you don't belong in that language. Yeah. In America, it's like everybody have have a stock in that language. Right. Nobody owns it. No. It's, it's for everybody it's, it's for in that everybody. sense. Well, it's funny because I tried to do that with Danish when I got here, and people would just constantly say to me, I understand what you're trying to say, but that's not how you say that. Uh, yeah. You know. Oh, that's interesting. It's just, it's just it, you know, that's not the correct way to express that. No. And that was just from translating from English to Danish, yeah. kind of directly. Were you raised speaking Danish, or did you guys speak no, Hebrew? No, I, I, I was raised speaking Danish, but my parents they spoke English actually, ah. because my father only slowly learned Danish. So when I was a child, they spoke English, and if it had if it had to be secret, they was they would switch to Hebrew, mm. which we I could understand a little of it, mm. but not not all. Is your mom Danish? My mother's Danish, but she uh, speaks Hebrew. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean that's it's kind of interesting growing up with a foreign father in a in a country, you know, in yeah, a separate country. It it simply means that you belong and you don't. And when you are a child, that's not so nice. But when you get older, it's I think it's an advantage because it so means that you you're like inside and outside. And that's not bad. Yeah, it's only bad when you're a child. You just want to belong. You just want to have. You just want to be like everybody. Right. Why is my dad so weird? Yeah. And <laughs> you feel embarrassed not, not being like everybody. So yeah. only when you get older, you appreciate being different. Kids, they just want to be like everybody. They Did, just want to melt in. Right. Yeah, right. It's a, it has, you know, the more normal, the better. Yeah. Which is perfect in a country like that. <laughs> you know, it just strikes me as kind of like there really is a lot of normative behavior here. And it's all about being... You know, like you're weird if your parents come from Jutland and you grew up in Copenhagen. You know, that's about as exotic as it gets. I hope that's changing. I think that's changing. But, you know, I imagine for you, it was pretty wild just being like, you know, people would be like, Israel, where's what? You know? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, yeah, for me growing up, I mean, I went to a Jewish school. So half of the day I was among similar kids that were like, uh, a blend of, of 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 fathers from one place and mothers from another place, but the moment you got home on your street and you you ring the doorbell of the neighbor kid, the whole circus starts. Right. What kind of weird name is that? <laughs> and uh, why do why do you have salad? Why do you eat avocado? You know that was very exotic things in the seventies. That's right. Avocado was yeah. not a thing here. No. And. Uh, yeah, it's um, it's you're right. It is an advantage later, but it is strange. 
in the beginning. Did you live in Israel ever? Was there ever a connection? Because no. I had that. <clears throat> no, we actually left when I was like a child. We, we left exactly after the Six-Day War, which was now, mm. which was this kind of like legendary war where everybody thought that Israel was going to be run over by all the different surrounding Arab countries and it didn't happen and my father was in the army when I when I was born uh, and uh, I think if, I see that I think it has nothing to do with the war they we had family in Canada and we had family in Denmark and I think my father wanted to go to Canada but my mother said if we're going somewhere else, else in Israel we're going we're going to go back to Denmark mm. so they moved to Rolova World famous Wallowa. Yeah. And uh, on Voyengeweig. <laughs> Is that where you grew up? Yeah. That was the first year. And then they bought a house in Valby, ah. which is like just next to Rolova and Vidova. And then I grew up in Valby there. That was darker times in Valby, wasn't it? It's all nice now, but I've heard it was a little yeah, rougher around the edges. Val yeah. Valby, Valby was a mix of like middle class and then kind of more working class and more rough areas. Mm. I think I really loved it, but I don't think it was pretty or I don't think it was something special. I just really liked it. And uh, I, w I, I was a kid full of imagination and, you know, I would find places for imagination. You know, it doesn't take more than a matchbox to create a whole world. And uh, I did this and... I think the mix of going to a Jewish school and then going to Valby was a quite good mix. Yeah. But it's like, it's also like, it could also be a recipe of a disaster. Right. I mean, that could be the, the, the beginning of a slow uh, overtone for a horrible story. You know? Yeah, sure. It's, in a way, it's uh, quite neutral. It sounds, it, it's like when you, when you do a party and you invite a lot of very different people people from work, old people, kids, you know it's a possibility of a disaster. But then suddenly, when you think of it, it was like a wonder. And I think my upbringing was a wonder. Yeah. It doesn't mean that, I think I, we were pretty much, you know, left alone a lot. You know, both of my parents were working, which is not, it's quite ordinary. They, they both work. Sure. Go, go outside, kids. Yeah, you just go out and you, you, you play in the backyard, you play in the front garden, you play in the basement, you walk you walk around a lot. And at that time, Valby was more suburbia, which meant the areas next to the train, there was a lot of these kind of middle areas. They were, they were not really countryside, but they were just between the, rail, the railroad and the kind of industrial areas urban open spaces yeah and this was this was the, the places we we were playing and um, there would be all these kind of factories that didn't uh, they were closed that you could kind of crawl in through a window and and it seems like every time you entered a building that was like shut down you would always find things that were even older like for instance in in Valby, there was the old um, Rex coffee factory which was actually not coffee it was something they made 
Oh, I think out of corn they made something that should be like coffee during oh, like the war. Like during the wartime, yeah. yeah, 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 when you couldn't get coffee. So suddenly you go, you are in. It's 1975. You crawl through a window, and then you are in 44. And I think that's how I felt a lot during my childhood. That you, there were all these doors and windows, and you would be. It would be 74, 78. But when you entered this door, this window. It would be 38, 43, or just 56. Time-traveling portals. So, time, yeah, it's, it was like, that's how I, I remember it. It was always about, or there would be a rundown uh, grocery store that just was shut for 10 years. And somehow you would get in there. You know, there would be some older kids that had a trick to open the door. And there would still be old groceries, like... Package of cornflakes that were ten years old, and you would just, you would just for a second smell the other era, right? And I think it's all about you know. In the, when I grew up in the seventies, there was all these doors and corridors and windows to other, other times, and I think I actually still like that. If you grow up, maybe today all the doors and corridors they are on children's telephones and iPads. But if you take them away and you let kids out in the street, they will sense the same. That actually what's amazing about a city that it's for the living and it's also for the dead. I don't mean it in a superficial way, like not superficial, in a supernatural way. Mm. I just mean that part of the city is built by people who are not there anymore. So somehow they're still present. Right, the layers on top there, of each There are all other. these layers and... Uh, the more boredom, the more you have a chance to sense this. It's true. Boredom is such a powerful force for kids. Yes. And just what 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 are we going to do? We have to go do something. Yeah, and I think I haven't been good enough to treat my kids to that kind of boredom that I, that developed me. Mm. Well, it's easier to treat boredom now. <laughs> yes. You know, when you were growing up, maybe you had a pack of cards. A board game. And we had I some think drawing materials. There, there's certain games that doesn't that disappeared. I don't know. I think it's different in America. You know what was the? You could always ask other kids on the street, "Do you want to play cowboy and Indians?" Sure. I think that wouldn't be politically correct in the states. No, 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 no. But actually, <laughs> but we did anyways. Yeah, or cops and robbers. The cops and robbers. We would even play workers, mm. even though we grew up in a working class area oh like factory working like that would building. be uh, take a shovel and go and dig a hole right. we played workers yeah. and then we would drink a beer that would be playing but <laughs> smoke a fake cigarette but i think nobody plays cowboys and indians anymore doesn't they say maybe you, you can play so? refugee today or terrorist if it would be today and i was a kid i would pay we play terrorist and anti-terrorist cops how about brexit negotiations <laughs> That would be a very advanced. That would be like academic kids. The kids of uh, political science. Yes. <laughs> no, but but it didn't. I mean, if we played cowboy and Indians, there was it was to be an Indian was not less than being a cowboy. Sure. It just had different. It, it was different fantasy. Symbolism. Yeah, and I I would say, Indians they would be more clever. Cowboys would be more well equipped but less smart and they would also be drunk mm. <laughs> drunk and uh, yeah not sneaky not sneaky <laughs> in the end there would be something having a knife in your teeth and crawling towards your enemy and every kit had their own shooting sound mm. and if you take that's true 
people my age and you say, lie down, close your eyes, let me hear your shouting, your, your, your shooting sound. I think for most adults, you can still know if which kind of shooting sound they have. Do you remember yours? That's so mine. Mine was more like... Because you were a machine gun. Yeah, I was an American. Yeah, you were, you were, you were advanced. I remember trying to teach my sister how to do that, and she just couldn't. She had her whole different shooting noise. So I think you're absolutely right. It's kind of like a, a, a genetic thing, you're, the gene for shooting noises. Yeah. I also, I mean... My girlfriend, she keeps wanting to buy dress for our son. And I say, for every dress she's going to buy for the boy, I'm going to buy him a gun. It's Well, it's modern times, right? I mean, uh, that's, uh, yeah. that's popular. No, it's fine. He, he can have a flamingo dress from the flea market, but then sure. he can also have an M16. Mm-hmm. That and then he can be, choose. He can choose and he can, be, he can be a boy in a flamingo dress with a gun. I think that's, that's a nice image. Yeah. I mean, I mean, that's a, you know, there's a lot of talk about, you know, kids aren't bored anymore and kids, uh, the iPads and the, oh, oh, Jesus, you know, but at the same time, there is other freedoms that have come. Mm -hmm. Uh, I remember a family member had a son who was probably about 20 years old now and, uh, his father, the kid really wanted a dollhouse and said, over my dead body, my son will have a dollhouse. Yeah. There's no fucking way we're not raising this kid to be like that. Yeah. You know, and I don't know if that's so... That, I think that changed. It, I don't know, but uh, I think that would be much more accepted yeah. today. Depending on where, of course, yeah. and, and how. But one thing that was interesting, especially when we talk about boredom, one of the things I'm really fascinated in is why we do what we do. And I loved that you were talking about how you didn't have any feeling for art. You didn't grow up being like, I'm going to be an artist. Because I had the same thing. I had no idea... I had a vague idea there was museums, there was art in there, but I didn't connect that with a job that somebody did. I grew up drawing because that was something that ex- existed. I, I don't know how much it exists today. You don't like, think so? I think uh, it's much more something you you have to put in front of kids when they are more than five years old. Mm. Because now the all these games on the phone and the iPad has taken that that kind of possibility. I, I am not going to judge whether this is good or bad. I, I also noticed that, you know, when we were kids, you develop a handwriting. Your, the way, your way of doing the different letters. And and I, I think that was very important. Whenever you got a new uh, textbook in school, how to write your name. And you, I would constantly play with the style of writing my name. And writing... Writing and drawing was closely connected. Mm. I mean, of course, one thing is words and one thing is a drawing, but there is a thin line between, between these two things. And you would you would get feelings for every letter. Yeah. Not this kind of like emotion, but you will have a sense for the S, a sense for the T, small T, large T, or if it was like in a running manner or... So I was a drawing kid and uh, for some reason I kept doing it after, you know, when I, when, when I got into puberty, usually that's when people stop. Soccer. Yes. Yeah. And I was, I was never playing soccer. Like, of course I would go out on the street, but I was, I was never into these things. I, I was in, and for some reason I, I was always into doing things on my own. Mm. 
I think that's also part of growing up in a busy family with we were four kids and there was like a lot of always a lot of people in the house. So to create a room where you could have your own fantasy, drawing was perfect for that. It was an absolutely private, non-ambitious, free space. And so non-ambitious that you never considered it anything else than just an You act. know, I did because in when I was Around 14, in Danish schools, you have to go to something called erhvervspraktik. It means that you have to go and be in some, you know, business for a week to learn what real life is about. And then I thought, okay, if I like to draw, maybe, maybe I, 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 I heard that if you, if, if you work in the advertisement business, then you, um, it's good to draw. So I tried to go to be a, in an advertisement bureau. So you're thinking illustration, illustration or some sort of but technical. It all already around 1981, it was gone. Nobody was drawing anymore in, in these advertisement uh, places. Then also I, I thought, okay, maybe I could do cartoons. But uh, I remember I, I went to this guy for a week that was doing cartoons and he let me paint his wall for a whole week. Yeah. It, was, it was okay. I mean... And I, I never had an idea about art. It, I had a, a, an aunt in Jerusalem who was like a teacher at the art academy. But I never connected this to drawing. I never thought drawing was something. I, I never thought about art as a child. What do you think it was? Do you think it was just that that was so separate from any sort of connection to your life? Because that's how it was for me. I knew museums were places. My parents were even... Uh, culture users, as you say in Danish, people who, uh, who who enjoyed going to art, but it never occurred to me that that was a thing that anybody actually did. It just was, it happened. It was yeah. there. I think it's, it's, it's very much like that, that as a child, it's, it's like with, you know, in the movie Silence of the Lamb, Hannibal the Cannibal, he says, the first rule of desire is that you desire the girl next door. That means you always desire things you see around you. If there is in your street a guy who's a mechanic and you, and he's always under cool cars, then you desire to be a mechanic. You usually desire things that you have some connection to. If And there were no no real connection to any artist. I never, I, I didn't know what kind of life that was, so I couldn't desire it. So not possible. Hmm. And also drawing for me never went towards painting. It went towards cartoons. Mm. It was like about every Saturday to go to Valby uh, Bibliothek, the library there, and which was this beautiful orange-yellow building. And then just take 20 cartoons, go home in your bed, have a piece of cake and sit all day until you're not allowed to do that anymore and just read one cartoon after the other. Mm. Yeah, it's funny how that doesn't... Well, I guess also you have to think about what art was in the 80s. It was different then. There wasn't as much an interest in, um, let's just say, street art or a cartoon. You know, cartoons were separated from fine art much more than they are now. Yeah. I mean, cartoons was a world of itself and it was something you read in the newspapers and you would buy these magazines. And I think if I ever fantasized about something when I was a kid, it was about doing cartoons. Mm. Did you try though? I, I did cartoons on my own. Uh, I, there was even the smell of the 
60s in my school, so I could also, instead of uh, when you were asked to write something, sometimes they allowed me to make cartoons instead, which was quite successful. Which was a great, great news, I imagine. Yes, and because I couldn't spell, so I actually, that's I think that's also part of the reason why I kept drawing, that I I could get some kind of success in school. I was the guy who could draw. Mm. And uh, it also gave me some kind of social respect until around 7, 8 grade. Then the respect stopped because then you start getting grades and the balance shifted in school and suddenly it was not really cool anymore to be the guy doing drawings. Certainly the teachers also at a certain point expect you to grow up, quote unquote. You Something know, like that. Yes. That was fun when you were a kid, but now it's time to get serious. Yeah. Which is, of course, kind of brutal. Um, I think... I mean, much has been said about about your trajectory through it, but I just I, I do you remember when it became art, quote unquote, for you? When it became when you had ambition? Yeah, I mean there was there was many years where I was in and out of different kind of like actually the same one private art school here in Copenhagen. And I, I really disliked it. I I felt very limited and I as most young people, I couldn't also concentrate and focus. Actually, the only thing you can focus about when you're 19 is to jerk off. That's about right. That's about right. And uh, the art school was not about jerking off. This was about just, it was about focusing on different techniques. And Was it very serious? It was quite serious. Yeah. It was a good school, but it was far over my, and it was, and it has nothing to do with my interest. It was about, art was suddenly about almost like school. Look at stuff lying on the table, try to draw them, see how a cup meets a table. Right, do a good job. Do a good job. Yeah. And I hated it. <laughs> I hated it. And, I, and I, 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 I didn't, I really didn't want to be an artist. Yeah. And I'm not saying this in a romantic way. I, it simply didn't interest me. Well, it can be miserable. That's the other truth about it. Yeah, but it was not even about, I mean, it was simply I had no connection. Any, I didn't have any pleasure of it. I didn't have any output from doing art. It was simply just an absurd game with a pencil. Mm. So what happened? Where did it change? I think actually more pressure. I think I got a child and I had no work and I had a job in my father's company that I didn't like. So I suddenly at a certain point, I say, okay, I'm, I'm going to do this now. I'm sure, going to be an artist. But financially, no, 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 no smart financial person says, okay, I'm out of money. I'm under pressure. I'm going to try to make a career in art. You yeah, know, but, that's the news you always get. Yeah. It's basically impossible. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> but I, something, something almost like coincidence. I remember I went to see a dance performance of uh, Sulu dancers. And they were jumping, you know, they, they can jump pretty high. And suddenly this guy in front of me turned around and he was with a, another person that I knew. And he says, did you ever teach art? And I had I, never taught art, but I just said yes. In I the middle of it. this presentation? Yes. I just faked it. And, and this person called Torben said, okay, I'm, I'm starting an art school tomorrow for uh, unemployed people. So oh, I join you. And then we start, and, and that was also, you know, end of the 80s, beginning of the 90s, because it was a social democratic government, and there was a lot of unemployed people, and they could simply go into 
the social awful and say, I have no job. And then the, the pe- person there would say, well, don't you want to learn to draw and paint? So there would be and this kind wham, of money would fall into then, their lap. Yeah. <laughs> so I would be me and Torben, we would teach these these uh, people. And that was really a luck, a good luck for me. Mm. Not only because I, I got money out of this job, I could survive, but also I had to start, you know, I had to start talking about art. I had to pretend that I knew something. I had to actually know something about it. Did you feel like a fraud? Uh, of course I did. I, because some of the kids were like 10 years old and they were not kids. They were adults and they were be- they were better at drawing than me. They would also apply for art school, for art academy, and they would get in and I didn't get in. Everybody knew that I was also applying and I didn't get in. Mm. My students, they got in. So it was all it was all one big embarrassment. It was all, yeah, it was just embarrassing. That's wild. Yeah, but I, I learned from it and uh, I, there's a weird Danish word. I don't know the English word for that. I escape. That you take ownership. Ownership, yeah. You learn to take ownership because you're forced to that. And when you're going to teach people to draw and they're better than you to draw, what are you going to do? You're going to take some kind of ownership over your own strategy. You're going to, yeah. Sink or swim, as they say. Okay, yeah, that's that's a good way of saying it. Sorry, I keep hammering this point, but it seems like it seems like to me like there's this whole really uh, like you became an adult the around. Dog is our- gonna bark. Just wait until he's done because he left, and then he's gonna bark. Marga, come here. Be like, why did come you here. leave? Is it a sheepdog? It's a sheepdog. Yeah, exactly. people should stay together. Yeah, and it gets and it, it takes. I know, buddy. But yeah, it seems like it seems like like you grew up around art, you know, like you were a child, and at some point you decided you needed to be an adult, and art was the tool for that in yeah. a weird way. I, I think I, actually, when I went to this art school for two years, I learned a lot of stuff there, but I had no way of using it, and I had no way of connecting what I learned to the idea of expressing myself. It was like two different worlds. There was like the desire of expressing myself, whatever. And then there was all these things that I learned and there was no connection. Were you unhappy at that period? I was quite unhappy. Yeah, I mean, I was actually, it was, yeah, it was quite miserable actually because you you, you really want to connect to this, but I couldn't. And I could see all these other you know, other students around me that had, it was much more easy for them. They would sit down and they would go forward and backward. And uh, I think usually, like we talked earlier about the perfect recipe for a bad party or a perfect recipe for a boring or bad upbringing. This, I think I was also a perfect combination of somebody who would quit doing art. I think it didn't, as in Danish you say, it, it was not in the cards mm. because I, I got so many rejections, not really from the outside world, more from myself. But I think I got the rejection because I had such a big desire to have this private room, this room where I could juggle, talk, cut down things. Under I, your own rules. Yeah, just way of digesting the world of you know today and yesterday and tomorrow 
And you see people, you know, if you walk around the lakes in Copenhagen, that's also something that hasn't always been like that. You see all these people running. <laughs> and you you know, you look at them and say, why are they running? It's even not that healthy to run that much. So why are they running? And you look at their faces, they're not they don't look happy. They don't look like they enjoy it. They don't even look like I'm putting pressure on myself to get better at running. It's not they don't they don't look focused like that. They just just look miserable. And you understand that, you know, it is, it sounds very banal what I'm going to say, but it is kind of difficult to be a human being because you have imagination and you have knowledge. You understand a bit about tomorrow and a bit about yesterday. So it is, it is very easy to feel miserable. And you search for tools to deal with this. A tool could be to run and look very miserable. <laughs> to just sweat it out. <laughs> yeah, or you, you know... People after work go into their basement and they, they get lost looking at stems from faraway countries and then they dream about, you know, the Ivory Coast. Or they get lost in other ways. But for me it really became I, I when I was in my mid twenties I understood what I what I came from. I came from this room of that drawing was not about, it was about what you need to do. What you as a person need to do, you sit down and draw. You put a piece of paper in front of yourself and that's what you start, like a very natural way. And for, I think from I was 18 when I left high school and I went to art school and until I was around 28 when I was in art academy, I slowly started understanding that I wanted to create this room again, this room of sitting down and doing what I need to do. And uh, around the end of my 20s, I, I I could say I got a taste for it. I got a taste that that would be possible. I also remember I, I looked at my own work at that point and thought it's not very good. But then, you know, I looked at other people's work and I thought, that's not good either. <laughs> that's a big moment. And then you understand, okay. And then you start this game and you start, you know, one stone gets into your shoe. That means for me, a big stone in my shoe was like Philip Gaston. That's a terrible stone to have in your shoe because... It hurts. It hurts. And also because I, when you get another artist as a stone in your shoe, it means that you, you're dealing with a problem you, you can't solve. And actually, that's the most important thing for for developing as an artist is to have these so-called problems. When you're teaching young artists, that's always what they're dealing with. And that's a difficult thing when you're teaching is that you see what kind of problem, but you can't tell them how to solve it because you destroy the moment for them to learn. Mm. So for me, Philip Gustin was stone in my shoe because I was somehow looking for what I also mentioned earlier, the kind of place between language and drawing where you draw a light bulb or a cigarette or a cup or a finger. And it is exactly what it is. It is a finger or a light bulb, but it's also something close to language, words. You can almost chew on them. And I, I really desired that in a very subconscious way. And then you see Phil Gosling and you have, the, you have the, the, the trouble because you have the answer to your question. 
but you cannot have other artists as an answer to your own questions. Right, it's just the beginning. It's just the beginning. And I spent, I think I spent two years, three years getting Fib Gustang out of my shoe. Then, you know, in art school, art school is about having all these stones in your shoe. And there's a bigger chance of killing your feet when you're in art school. And uh, you need to develop some kind of brutality. Mm. Over for yourself or over for everything? Or Towards what do you mean? taking stuff, being aware, okay, now now I bumped into Kippenberger and Mike Kelly, you know, the, the weird link between Cologne and L.A. There was this beautiful, great moment in the late 80s, beginning of the 90s, where there was this bridge between Cologne artists that came out of a more political discussion and then... then LA artist that was also political but more American mainstream burned down low culture whatever trash yeah but this was really great being an art student and getting into all this because it was close to it was close to cartoons it was also more important close to the life that you grew up in it was not our it was art not growing out of fine culture it was art, it was art growing out of whatever kind of suburbia you came from suddenly you understood that the suburbia you thought was more distraction was actually the possibility you understood understood that every ugly basement bar your uncle created out of silver foil was suddenly the perfect thing to turn into an artwork mm -hmm. and that was a great tool and when I say you need to be brutal is that you have to understand that Every artist works from a method, and every method has an example. So what you can learn from other artists is, is not the example. It's more you go into the method. If you, if you focus only on the example he used, then you are lost. Then you're just, you, you, you get lost in, in, the, in the copy. It's a loop. It's a loop, and, but you can actually go into the method. You should understand, okay, what are they actually flipping? Mm. The way they flip stuff. Mm how an artist would go two steps forward with something half destroyed and inject with something completely different you can it's a, it's a certain kind of method that you can play around with and the more you play with this and you have to accept in the mo at the beginning you play with somebody else's method you start building your own method right trying out trying to copy it but ending up doing it in your own way in your anyways. own way and it is and it's more obvious you get lost in that process but also for me, you know, people like Kierkeby had a very specific way of talking about art that for me was very generous. He would speak very high and very low at the same time. This is the Danish artist Pierre the Danish Kierkeby. Danish artist Kierkeby. He, yeah. I think he was very important for me, the way he talked about art, the way he talked about method, about cutting things down, about how to fish in other people's work, hmm. to fish in your own work. And he spoke about, you know, and, and he, he had part of his method also from Asger Jorn. So there was this, there was these people, and I think that's very important that you grow up in an environment where there are local people who manage to develop something. Because if it's only about people across the ocean, yeah, then it's very easy to become like just a tourist. Right, a museum guest. Yeah, and yeah, and that's 
that can be quite touching, but that's very rarely productive. Mm. You see a lot of uh, European pop art, suburbia pop art, and true magazines. And if they took the ferry to New York in the in the sixties, and they saw pop art, and then they went back home and made you know Cologne pop art, Helsinki pop art, Stockholm pop art. But it was always the best you could say about it is that it was exotic. So, Which is a really, really awful thing to say, really, yeah, in a lot of ways. It, it, has, it has a taste of something tragic. But if there are people in your city that manage to get their work over the average, it's more easy to learn from, even mm. you don't know them. And uh, I think Kierkeby, Pierre Kierkeby was a very important character. Did he, you have him as a professor never, or did you just I met him? I didn't know him. I only got to know him when I was an adult mm. when but I I studied you know every etching every kind of graphic work he did I, I was he's made a lot of works yeah and I took the books home from the library and I and I there was I, I couldn't get it mm. but uh, also as an artist I think as an art student you deal with a lot of stuff that you don't understand and that's very important and it's also important that you quite quickly understand when you go to see shows in museums or galleries, it's not about judging whether you like it or not. That's actually very limited. You should just look at it. You should try to find out if there's something you can get out of it. Jam it into your head forcefully. <laughs> yeah, no, you should see. You should more think, is there something I can get out of this? Mm. Not, I don't like it. Oh, I like it. Because both things is like a, a close party. Mm. If you like it, I like it. Yeah, but it's, then it's done. Right. I don't like it. It's also then it's done. Just look at there's something you can bring back home. Yeah, I mean, it strikes me. I I feel very connected to this story because it is similar to me. I feel like uh, I didn't have a, a traditional course through uh, becoming an artist, and I also didn't really get serious until I was about twenty nine or thirty. Mm -hmm. Similar to you, and for me, I realized it also came from a certain acceptance of the need for some sort of ego. Mm. And I mean that only in the most positive of senses to have enough self-respect to say this is worth fighting for. And what I do is actually of value somehow, yeah. you know, and it's, you have to be very careful not to blow it up out of proportion, but you also, you can spend a lot of time just cutting yourself down. I think that, when you are like a, an art student, a young artist, a young young person trying to be an artist, mm. it is actually in the beginning all about, you could say ego. I'm not sure any longer what ego actually means, but it's about having a place in the in the social circus. It's about... The social circus. Yeah, it's about knowing what to say when you meet old people from school, family members... It's about when you are in a nightclub, in a disco. Nobody says disco anymore. But if you're in a disco and you meet somebody and they they don't just ask what kind of shoes you're wearing, but they also ask what you do when it's daytime, you can say, I'm an artist. Or you can say, I'm a car mechanic or I work in a shop, I'm in McDonald's. But you need to have this card. It's such a loaded statement. I'm an artist. Yeah, but it's diff also something different. Today, it seems like being an artist is it's quite a hipster thing artists used didn't used to be a hipster thing it mm. used to be more like a nerdy 
Which is weird. You're generally weird. just weird. It's weird, and it's something where you smoke a pipe and you're wearing an Icelandic sweater. It's it's it it wasn't really cool. It was more weird. Yeah. It's my father. Man of the hour. Man of the hour. I've totally lost my thread. Where were we? There's to have an ego and a social. Right. For me, it was important because I always, I've, I've been embarrassed. I still am embarrassed to say I'm an artist to mm. some degree because for me, it seems, dare I say, useless? Mm. I don't know. You know what I mean? Like, it just, it seems so. There's that great Danish word, awafluli. Yeah. It's over the, it's, it's, it's unnecessary. It's, it's lying over the limit of what we need. Yeah. And of course, that's not true at all. We know this intellectually, mm. but it still feels like I should be digging a well somewhere yeah. or something. And so I had to come to terms with that. Mm. And that took me until my late 20s, early 30s. But are you saying it about yourself now? I'm an artist. Not always. No. Not always. It, it's mixed. Yeah. Uh, and that's sometimes because you just don't want to have that talk at the disco, so yeah. to speak, you know, yeah. because you, you, it, it's, you know, it's the same as saying something hyper-specific where people are like, well, what does that even mean? You know, then they want to know, like, what, what, how, how does this even, you know, being an artist doesn't mean anything, really. It means you make something, but they don't know, are you, do you make cartoons? Do you sell work in a gallery? Are you, uh, you know, like, it, it, it's a long discussion, so you may not even want to get into that. But it's also just, a, a, or I guess the question is, is it an identity? Um. I think it depends on the day. What day is it today? Today would be Tuesday. It's Tuesday. I would say I'm in the entertainment business. <laughs> no, I think, you know, even the Bible is entertainment. Sure. And uh, entertainment can ruin your life. It can also create, create you know complete new horizons but I th I think art is also part of entertainment and there are many different kinds of entertainments there are entertainment that you hope you never looked at and then there are entertainment that you are so grateful for I don't know if it's I, I'm quite unsure about all these words you know like identity and ego I think I always thought that it was like a coincidence that I became an artist. But then when you look back, you see that that's probably the only thing that could have happened. Considering how many times you could have jumped off. Yeah, it. but it's when you look back, everything always looks logic in a way. Also There's a true. way of seeing it as logic, but there, you could also see it in a different way and say it's just a coincidence. And... Uh, I'm quite unsure about that. Mm. But I mean, I guess the, the big question is, are you, are you enjoying it? Why do we, you know, I'm always obsessed with why do we keep doing what we do? Because drawing as a kid is fulfilling and fun and being an artist can be fucking miserable, mm. you know? So where's the in-between of being an adult in that? I, I enjoy it tremendously. I, I think the older I get, the more I understand why I do it. Mm. I think it's uh, 
simply a way of you could also say it's a way of having a voice it's a way of having uh, power would be a it would be a funny word to use just because it is not really power it's not more power than trying to fight superman with a cup of coffee <laughs> but it feels like some kind of power it feels like personal power it feels like that you can you can you can talk back mm. things that are talked projected towards you mm. you can turn things around you can chop things up and create new stories out of it i think i am even though some of the works that i do are completely not narratives completely abstract they have you can't say what it is it's all about narratives you could also say narrative losing their their ground yeah well i mean that's the important part is keeping going far <laughs> okay um I think you come from a family of builders. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, all right. Well, I mean, to wrap it up, I guess the big question for me also comes back to teaching and passing it on in a way, because mm. you have been very active in teaching. Yes. And you seem to have a lot of words about um, about what you do. You know, you are able to articulate. I've talked to other artists who just say, I can't even tell you why. They have no words for it. Mm. They can't write about it. They can't do anything. Um, does teaching help you personally? Or is that more like giving it back to the world? Or what does that mean for you? I think teaching helps a lot. Personally? It, yeah, because if you don't have a, a method of teaching, then you would have to look at other people's work like you look at your own work. You have to try to solve the puzzle. And... Uh, It also helped developing a language. And I think the language, in the end, there's always a chance it might destroy you when you get language because you become aware. And if you become more aware than you can digest, then it, you're going you're gonna to fall. But I think in most cases, to force yourself to talk about your work, to accept that you have to find your own way of doing it, is helpful. Mm. I completely understand people who don't talk about their work, who can't. But I think at least in art school, you have to try to do it. They have so, a hard time there in that context. Yeah, and uh, there's also a difference between America and Europe. In America, whenever I've been in American art schools, they are much better talking. They, it's like much it's all you do basically yeah if you go into a danish or a german art school where i have most of my experience like in germany like it seems like all the people who doesn't want to talk about everything they end up in art school <laughs> they think that they can hide there mm. and then you understand that you it's about having you know distance to your work and when you talk you get this terrible distance but this terrible distance also help you to create works that com can communicate beyond the private. And there are periods where you should talk and there's periods where you should not talk. 
but just I, like there's periods where you should make things and periods where you shouldn't make things i think that most of us get really tired of talking about ourselves it just becomes like quite boring and you start doubting the more you you ask questions about you actually start doubting your answers because mm. you have said them more than once right so you're not really sure anymore if you if if the answers are just there in your pocket or, or you really you really know why right what day is it like you said earlier yes. on tuesday the answer is like this yeah <laughs> but i mean i imagine the teaching is is also a way of not um of getting away from that, of getting out of the of the of the sphere of of working alone, you know, you spend so much time alone, etc. Not talking, or at least talking in your head with yourself about it. Um, I think teaching is very intense. Mm. It's very intense, and it's uh, I I really enjoyed it. I did it like full, not yeah, kind of full time for nine years. It's a long time. It's a long time, and. I had a really good class in Düsseldorf where, I mean, if you have a good class, it's like having a a village. And in this village, they start, it, it, it start educating itself. It start, there's so much, it's, so much information is in that environment. So many people who are on a track that other people start learning from that as well. Mm. And that you, as a teacher, become a little bit like not the main person there. You are more kind of from the side. In the beginning, you are in the front. Later, you are just more from the side. And uh, right, you watch them become you watch themselves. Them you, you. The thing is, constantly you have to reflect in new ways of what they are doing. But the things you have to say as a as a human being or as an artist, you can say that in in a few days. After that, it's just. Not to bore people, you say it in different ways, or you you make new variations, or you take what you already said and you try to connect it to somebody. Then you say it in another way. Mm. But basically, I don't think most people, whatever they have to say, they can say in a few days. Mm. That's it. But then, of course, people put an object in front of you, and you start enjoying the game of that. You have no clue what to say about this object. You don't know. You look at it and you feel completely alien. And then you start looking for a way in. And then you find, you, you most of them you actually find a way. Maybe they say something or you see something in the corner that's something completely different from this object that they placed in front. And you can create some kind of entrance to this object in the corner. And this game, I think I enjoyed that a lot this embarrassment of feeling that you don't know what to say to this person you you have no clue you you are i even you know you are, you are, you are so clueless towards that object you don't even feel like an artist you feel like you don't feel like an artist it's like the artist just left the building and you just look at this blue object and you don't know what to say and then you try and you look for it you find a way, you ask a question, they say something, and you understand the gap between what they say and this object, and you start creating conversation. That is not, it is in a way entertaining for yourself, but hopefully also productive for the person behind the blue object. Hopefully. Hopefully. All right. Well, um, I have one last question. You, um, you have achieved, let's just say, 
let's not get into a discussion of that. But in the beginning, especially, there's that whole idea like, I, you know, will I be able to make a career out of this? Mm-hmm. Will this even work, et cetera? Uh, do you have any thoughts on what continues to make uh, to to get out of bed in the morning? Because you could go back to bed. Yeah, but it's it sounds like a terrible cliche. It always does. But and it is a cliche. But it's never been the career that got me out of the bed. Mm. It's it's always been the puzzle. And the puzzle is still there, and uh, it always creates new variations. It always creates new corridors where you want to take previous experience, take it down that corridor, or even let previous experience behind. Say now, now this is over. There's all these farewell, all these goodbye, and all these hellos in this process, and this takes me out of bed. And it's never done. And may, if it is done then you will never know. It will be maybe something that happened behind you. Mm. You know, also the fool never knows. He's a fool before it's too late. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> I very appreciate it. I hope you can use it. Absolutely. And thank you for listening to this episode and all the other episodes of the Undergang Armchair. The intro and outro music was kindly provided by Johnny Ripper, and today's interstitial music was provided by David Hyde. You can find links to their music and tons of other conversations with great people on our centennial celebration of a website, undergang.net. If you like this show or just feel like wishing us a happy 100 episodes, we would appreciate it if you'd take the time to leave a review on iTunes so others can find us. It helps tremendously. You can also tell a friend, put it on social media. Anything helps. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back soon.